All right, I, whoo. It's probably good that I wasn't that loud when I read, huh? You would have thought God himself was speaking. Well, it's good to be back. It's good to see you. Um, a lot has happened in my life. I haven't had any more grandchildren. You may be wondering. We tried to get one a month, but it wasn't a good month in October. Uh, but I did get to mow our lawn about 17 times. We have had unceasing rain in the Northeast uh, this, this summer. We had bad flooding uh, in the middle of the summer, and it has just rained and rained and rained and rained. I'm not kidding you. We probably mowed about every three days and still not keeping up with it. So it has really been wet. Um, but it is good to be back, and uh, we're hoping that uh, most of you have, with joy in your heart, missed the Kansas City game. I know it's on right now as we're worshiping, and uh, but we're going to just plow through and trust the Lord to build us up in our most holy faith. You know, hope is a powerful thing, isn't it? The scriptures confirm this. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. I think back to the summer of 1986. The year before, I had felt the Lord calling me, and my wife confirmed that, and our church confirmed that, to go into the pastorate. So the year before, we moved to Dallas. I moved there with my wife and my two sons, and we began seminary in preparation for that calling. Now, I'd gotten what I thought was the perfect job for someone that had no money and had a family to support while he was going to seminary. I got a job teaching accounting at Dallas Baptist University. It paid well, it was flexible, it was close to my home, and it was close to the seminary. But tragedy struck the second semester of my first year there teaching, which was also my first year in seminary. The school was in financial trouble. And when the cash-paying night students, because I had to teach a few night classes, when they started complaining to the university president about their grades, pressure was applied on me and presumably on the other business faculty to alter our grading systems. In fact, I was called individually into the president's office and told by him that if I didn't give these cash-paying students, that's how he referred to them, these cash-paying students better grades, he would fire me. Well, long story short, I decided to resign along with three other of the seven total business faculty. And though I got a job quickly as a pension administrator, pension accountant for an insurance company, I actually believe that with this full-time job, my hope of training for the pastorate was over. I didn't see how I could mesh a full-time job, going to seminary, and being a good father and husband. I quickly became depressed, and in the summer of 86, I came down with a nasty case, a nasty case. It laid me up for almost two months of ulcerative colitis. Some of you know about that condition. You see, hope deferred had not only made my heart sick, 
but it had made my body sick as well. Now, eventually, I recovered. My company ended up giving me two afternoons off per week so that I could pursue seminary. Dallas Baptist University made a complete turnaround and is a fine school today. And here I am, still pastoring after near 40 years. Yes, hope is a powerful thing, either for good or for ill. And today I want to argue that biblical hope is the key, biblical hope is the key to both a life of holiness and happiness, a veritable and never-ending tree of life. So speaking of the tree of life, let's just take a moment to revisit the Garden of Eden with this question, what happened to our hope when we sinned in Adam? What happened to our hope when we sinned in Adam? You're clear, I'm sure, that his sin is our sin. His sin was imputed to us, and it's our sin. The sin of the one is the sin of the many. So when Adam sinned, what happened to our hope? Because we joined him in that sin. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 with me, if you would. Ephesians chapter 2. You don't know where Ephesians is. It's past the Gospels in the New Testament. It's before the book of Revelation. <laughs> That's really helpful, isn't it? Yeah, really helpful. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm just going to read two verses, starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. According to Ephesians 2, when we sinned in Adam, we lost our hope. Now that makes sense because sin resulted in us being cut off from God, cast out of his presence. And of course, to lose God, if you will, and to be without God is to be without hope. So God's gift of hope, you know, back page. So because of our sin in Adam, we became the wretched man of Romans 7. Do you remember that sermon I preached a few weeks ago? The one you disagreed with? Romans chapter 7. We became the wretched man of Romans 7. Desperate to be delivered from sin's penalty. Which was what? Death. Do you remember his cry? He cried out, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? You see, that's the cry of a hopeless man. Desperate for freedom, desperate for the hope of eternal life. And God has not disappointed, has he? Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Now, 1 Peter is pretty close to Revelation. Not quite. 1 Peter chapter 1. Pick it up in verse 3. You know, in the church that I founded and pastored for 30 years in Vermont... We've got lots of people that come every Sunday that don't know where things are in the Bible. And uh, uh, some of the pastors like to give them page numbers. That always bugged me. I thought if I give them page numbers, 
they're never going to learn where anything is. So I'm telling them to turn left, turn right, go back. And so forgive me if I imbibe that a little bit. First Peter chapter 1, um, and I'll pick it up in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I know, if you know Jesus Christ, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says that God, in his great mercy, has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of his Son. And this hope is not fleeting, like many hopes, which are sort of like the bubbles that my grandkids blow from a bottle. You know what I'm talking about? It's not like that. You blow those bubbles and poof, they're gone. No, God's hope is a living hope. It's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, protected by God's power through faith. It's the, kip, it's the gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? But what does it give? Let's go back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. Pick it up in verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, just a little background on this short letter. John sought to assure these dear believers regarding their salvation by overturning the false knowledge of the false teachers who were upsetting the faith and undermining the assurance of the entire church. Now, to accomplish this, John enters into a discussion of the already and the not yet. Remember, remember that salvation has both a present and future aspect. Now, right now, we are children of God. He wanted to assure them of this. Right now, there is an unmistakable family resemblance to Jesus Christ. In fact, if there's not, John's going to say, you're a liar. If you claim to know God and there's no resemblance to Jesus Christ, John's going to say you're deceived. Right now, for those of us who truly know Christ, there's an unmistakable family resemblance to Jesus Christ, the chief characteristic of that family resemblance is love for one another. But his image is still being formed in us, isn't it? For some more than others. Yes, his image is still being formed in us. Right now, it has not yet appeared what we shall be. I mean, we have a vague notion, but that really hasn't appeared in any crystallized form. You see, our conformity to Jesus Christ is only partial right now, and here's why. Conformity to his image is based on clarity. And right now the Bible says that we see through a mirror dimly, a glass darkly. We can't 
see Jesus Christ clearly because his image is distorted by sin's presence in our lives. We've been forgiven of sin's penalty. We've been delivered from sin's power. But sin's presence lingers heavily, doesn't it? You know, maybe it's like those funny, curvy mirrors at the fair. I don't know if you have a a state fair here in Kansas City. Do you have a state fair here in Kansas City of any type? Do you know the curvy mirrors I'm talking about? Your body just looks all funny, doesn't it? And Jesus looks funny to us. It's, it's, his image is distorted because sin's presence has not been vanquished. However, a day is coming when he shall appear. And at that moment, we will be just like him because we shall finally see him as he is. And here's the kicker. Here's the power of hope. Let me read that again. Just verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Another translation says that everyone who fixes his hope on him purifies himself as he is pure. There it is. I can't see Jesus Christ right now as he is. Sin's presence is distorting my field of vision. But to the extent that I hope to see him one day, I'm being transformed into his image. To say it another way, though I can't behold Jesus at the moment, I can hope to behold him. I can hope to see him. And scripture tells us that merely hoping to see him has an amazing transformative power. In fact, everyone who has this hope of seeing him, of beholding him, purifies himself, advances in personal holiness. Just the hope of seeing Jesus Christ is the power of God for completing our salvation. Now, by the way, if you're having any trouble with that, I want you to just think about what happens when you're away from your spouse or your children, assuming you like your spouse and your children. That's, that's an assumption, I understand. I've had children I didn't really like. I like them all right now. But when you're away from them, and especially if it's for a long time, I travel a lot, and, and I've got a great wife. She's probably one of the kindest people that I know, and I like being around her. Because if nobody else likes me, she does. And the longer I'm away, the more I start fixing on her. The more I start desiring to be with her. This is the idea that we're getting at here. It's not just, I have this theological hope that someday I will see Jesus Christ, yes. And at that moment, there'll be an ontological change and I will become just like him because I will behold his image as it is, yes. That's all very good, check. No, no, that's not the idea at all. This hope that we're talking about is a longing to see somebody. It's a heartfelt desire to be in his presence. We're going to see him face to face, the one who loved us and delivered himself up for us, the ultimate and true lover of our souls. And what the Bible is saying 
is as you fixate on that, not just the transformative process that it will produce, and it will, but as you fixate on him, as he increasingly becomes the apple of your eye, this amazing transformative process takes place. Just hoping to see him causes a transformation in your character, causes a movement toward holiness. So God's gift of hope brings holiness, but it also brings happiness. Holy people are happy. Now, most of our joys, let me explain how that works. Most of our joys, would you agree with me, are circumstantially driven. I'm happy because I passed a test or because I got a promotion or granted I gained another grandchild. That makes me happy. Or I passed an annual checkup at the doctor. But these are transient and unreliable sources of joy and happiness. But what happens when you have a hope that will not fade away, that's protected by the very power of God? What happens when you have that? Who can get at that hope? What can get at that hope? What diminishes that hope? Can death or life or angels or rulers or things present or things to come, or powers, or height, or depth, or anything else in all creation separate us from the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ? No. To say it another way, what is it that ruins everything in our lives? It's death. Does not death ruin everything? My job, my friends, my family, my pleasures. But to hope in Jesus Christ is to hope in the resurrection from the dead because it comes from the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, shall live. You see, healthy eating won't save me. Regular exercise won't preserve my life. The best health care system in the world cannot alter the inevitable. Doctors lose 100% of their patients. You see, you and I have a terminal disease called sin. And its most prominent symptom is death. And the only remedy for death is life. Resurrection. And God has given his people this imperishable gift of hope. A hope that one day the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. Yes, and then the saying will come true, which says what? Death is swallowed up in victory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now, i got to say, if that hope doesn't make you just a little bit happy, you may be hopeless. 
I mean, there's nothing happier than to think that death cannot reign on our parade. You know that in Christ, you prevail. You know the outcome is secure. You know that we win. We know that even though we die, we'll live forever. Maybe an illustration will help. It's kind of like Super Bowl 51 in 2017. Now, let me just quickly say, especially knowing that the Chiefs are playing right now, I want to be very careful. As a New Englander, I love watching Patrick Mahomes. You know, he's way more fun to watch than Tom Brady ever was. And he seems like a happier guy to me, too. But Brady, like Mahomes, knew how to win. And though the Patriots were down 19 points at the start of the fourth quarter of Super Bowl 51, Brady brought them all the way back to beat Atlanta in overtime, 34-28. Now, watching that game for the first time, in other words, as it occurred, was agonizing. I was very unhappy and, frankly, hopeless during most of the game. But what was my real problem? What was really my problem? It's that I wasn't and still am not omniscient. I did not know the outcome. I did not know that New England would launch the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history, scoring two touchdowns and two two-point conversions in the fourth quarter just to tie the score and then go on to win in that first overtime. Now, if I were to watch the game today, there'd be no problem. My joy would be unaffected. I could watch Brady throw that pick six near the end of the first half and then run like he needed oxygen to try to catch the guy as he ran it back and say to myself, you know what, no problem. We've got this. And happily take another nacho slathered in cheese because I know the outcome. We won. We won. Brothers and sisters, we know the outcome. No matter how badly sin ravages our bodies, no matter how badly sin ravages our relationships, no matter how bad sin ravages our entire lives, we have an untouchable hope and a resilient joy that flows from that hope that enables us, like our Savior, to endure for the joy set before us, whatever God throws our way. You see, right now, right now, our names are written in heaven. And we know that a day is coming when our faith shall be sight. No more tears, no more pain, no more sin, no more death. Hallelujah. And this hope, which brings holiness, also brings happiness joy, a joy that must inevitably manifest itself in robust worship and effusive praise, like David as he escorted the ark back to Jerusalem. Are you a little uncomfortable when you read that story? 
I've read some commentaries on that story that criticize David, besides with his wife. I, I can't get around that at all. I can't get my head around that at all because the wife ends up getting cursed with barrenness, if you remember. I'm not sure that the score is unclear. Uh, but I'm a little comfortable when I, when I read about him. I don't know, what was he running around in priestly underwear or something? Hard to know exactly what David was wearing. I can't quite translate it. But just the way he's carrying on and dancing all around the ark like he was a, a bullfrog or something, it just makes me uncomfortable. And yet, and yet, if I really have that joy, 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 joy down in my heart, shouldn't it start to manifest itself in ways that the Psalms give license Dancing, singing, shouting, playing all manner of instrument. You see, biblical hope transforms us into happy saints. Now, I should mention a third thing which flows from the power of hope. I think that hope properly lodged in Christ also powers daily dependence on God. I want to explore this further in one of the future sermons I do this year, Lord willing. But just quickly, I think it works like this. Our dependence on God, which manifests itself in desperate prayer at times, is typically fueled by crisis. In other words, when a crisis hits, we hit our knees. The crisis of health is a classic one. But when the crisis is over, we kind of go our merry way, don't we? But the truth is, and I'm still trying to get my head around this at age 68, the truth is that you and I are actually in crisis all the time because the threat of death hangs over our heads like that proverbial Damocletian sword. Jesus responded to this very threat, it says in Hebrews 5, by offering up prayers and supplications, how? With loud crying and tears. This is what characterizes Jesus' life in the days of his flesh. He was a man of sorrows, and he was offering up with prayers and supplications, with loud crying and tears, he was offering up requests to God that he would save him from death. And Hebrews says he was heard because of his piety. See, when I look at the life of Jesus Christ, his was a life of daily dependence on God because the threat of death was continually before him. So too with us. Death has not yet been swallowed up. If we understand the nature of our hope of the not yet, when death will be swallowed up, then we know that right now in the already, death has not been swallowed up. And we must cry to God for deliverance like Christ. I think that sense of ongoing crises, not that we don't have assurance of salvation, I'm not saying that, but I'm living in the moment, that ongoing sense that death lurks, produces a daily dependence and devoted prayer, not only for ourselves, but for everyone else living under the curse, starting with our brothers and sisters. But as I said, more on that later.
My focus today is that biblical hope is the key to holiness and happiness. So we must be about protecting it. Two things as I close. How can we protect this hope? First, it should be obvious that the biblical hope centers on Jesus Christ. I want to look at just a couple of verses. Titus chapter 2. Funny little book to find there, right after First and Second Timothy, and right before Hebrews and Philemon. Titus chapter 2. I'll pick it up in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for or looking for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. What does that passage say? Grace instructs us to live righteously, and we do that by looking for, by waiting for the blessed hope of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the focus of biblical hope. We get that same idea from Hebrews chapter 12. This is a familiar passage. But go back to Hebrews or go forward to Hebrews chapter 12. And let me pick it up in verse 1. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Endurance, that is, continuing to walk in holiness for the long haul, comes through fixing our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, that by His example we might not grow weary and lose hope. Again, Jesus is the focus. Biblical hope is focused on Jesus, We also saw it in 1 John. Our hope is to finally see him. Because just seeing him, the hope of seeing him, is transformative. Again, Jesus is the focus. The key, therefore, to protecting our biblical hope is by keeping centered on Jesus Christ, who is, in fact, the hope of glory. And as you well know, this entire book points to and is about Jesus Christ. Now, it's fine to state that in the positive. You want to protect your hope? Stay centered on Christ. He's the focus of biblical hope. But we would be remiss, secondly, if we didn't take dead aim at all competing and unbiblical hopes. So let's ask this question. What is an unbiblical hope? What is an unbiblical hope? It's any hope that is not promised 
in God's Word. Now, by the way, you and I have all sorts of hopes. Really, they're wishes, they're desires, don't we? That have no corresponding promise in God's Word. You, you agree with me on that? All kinds of wishes and desires. When I was here last, I said, I really hope that Ohio State beats Michigan. I'm a, I'm a hardcore Ohio State Buckeye fan, went to Ohio State, lived just down the street from it, grew up next to it. But it's a wish. It's just a wish at this point. I'm nervous that it may be mere wishful thinking. But let's look at some others. For instance, how about good health? Good health isn't promised, is it? How about a happy marriage? It's not promised. How about healthy children? How about saved children, despite all of our efforts to baptize them, catechize them, do this, do that to them? It's not promised. Saved children are not promised in the Word of God. How about a healthy and harmonious church? You probably know a little bit more about that than I do. It's not promised, is it? How about a satisfying job? Career fulfillment? It's not promised. How about a comfortable retirement? It's not promised. Your favorite team winning is not promised. Now, to be sure, there is nothing wrong in wanting and or praying for any or all of those things. There's nothing wrong at all. We just can't bank on them. We can't lodge our well-being in them. We can't fix our hope on them. In fact, to do so is a recipe for despair. For hope deferred makes the heart and sometimes the body sick. And what signals, how can you know that you've fixed your hope on something not promised by God's word? If you're just trying to do some self-diagnostics, what would signal to you that you've got a misplaced hope? I think it would be this. When you're not able or willing to do without it. Something not promised by the word of God must be something that we're willing to do without. Instead, we must hold those hopes, if you will, with an open hand with an if-the-Lord-wills kind of an attitude. If-the-Lord-wills 
This is what I want to have happen. I'd like to do this if the Lord wills. If we're unwilling to do that, that hope has become an idol. And what happens if it's already become an idol? What happens? You're here today and you're realizing, I've got a bunch of hopes that aren't promised by the Word of God that I'm not going to be okay if they don't come true. They're going to undo me if they don't come to fruition. What do you do if you're recognizing, yeah, that's not promised? You have to repent. You have to repent. It's an idol. Or to quote, I admit out of context, the movie Frozen, which my granddaughters awakened me to, let it go. I'm deadly serious. Let it go. Let it go. Turn away and slam the door on all unbiblical hopes. Without pity, tear them out. Root them out of your heart. For God is a jealous God who books no rivals. You know, it's kind of like those professionals who come into your home, they organize all your closets, they help you to purge all the stuff you've hoarded in every nook and cranny of the house and garage. We want to let God's Spirit, who dwells in that cluttered home called your heart, we want to let Him, we want to ask Him, we want to beg Him to come in and purge our hearts of all those false hopes. We want to let them all go. So let me ask you, are you willing, Faith Community Church, are you willing to repent of idolatrous hopes? It's the single biggest threat to laying hold of the biblical hope. Dear unbeliever, here today, I need to tell you all your hopes, every single hope that you have will come to naught because death will ruin everything. But I've got good news for you, dear unbeliever. Jesus is offering you, through this poor, lisping preacher, he's offering to you a living hope if you'll but come to him this morning. Life eternal, will you take it? Will you take it? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and God will cause you to be born again to a living hope that will not fade away. And my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, by God's Spirit, will you confess your spiritual adultery? That's what it is. You've given your heart to something else. Will you confess your spiritual adultery the embracing of hopes not promised, and forsake them all so that your heart may again be fully devoted to the Lord who is the only lover, true lover of your soul. Will you? This faithful lover longs for you to love and cherish him with all of your heart. He wants you to ache 
for his son with all of your soul. And he wants you to join the chorus of creation and the Spirit by groaning from the depths of your being for the resurrection from the dead. That's what he wants, our God. And what's the result? A happy holiness for everyone who has this hope fixed on Christ purifies himself just as he is pure. So brothers and sisters, we must hope only in Christ if we're to be holy just like Christ. We must hope only in Christ if we're to be holy and happy just like Christ. To quote the Apostle Peter, we must fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so I say, may we let go of all those hopes which have not been promised and will ultimately disappoint and instead hope, really hope, only in God's Son and the completion of our salvation when He returns. Would you bow with me, please? Father, we thank You for this hope. Lord, we know that there are so many things competing for our affections. We ask that you might help us to say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but thee? And besides thee, I desire nothing on earth. For as for me, the nearness of God, the nearness of God is my good. We thank you for these things. We thank you that the Lord Jesus has brought us near. We pray in his name. Amen.